to the Lord to be back in the house of the Lord. We are grateful that the word um, is the centerpiece for why we gather. If there was no preached word of God, there would be no purpose in our gathering. So we are grateful for that. We are looking um, this week at as things are developing historically in the Bible as we see it. We know that we've come to a point where Saul has now been anointed the king. And at this point, we want to know what it means for him to actually be king in this specific place. And so we're looking at some of the qualities that he has, and many of us do know the way that Saul ends up, but I think it's really important for us to see some of the things that happened that were going on with him when he began. Some of the ways that God had graced him to be able to lead and to be able to uh, shepherd his people as a king. And so the title of today's sermon is What a Real Leader Looks Like. <laughs> what a Real Leader Looks Like. And so almost anywhere you go, wherever you go, you will probably get a lesson from somebody on what it means to be a great leader. Pastors turned motivational speakers will even use their pulpits as platforms for leaders and what they call leadership training. Influencers on social media will even promise to turn you into a good leader if you pay a meager $99 subscription and they will promise that you will be able to be a good leader if you just follow that plan. Everyone thinks in their minds that they know what makes a good leader and many of us, when we assess ourselves, even fancy ourselves to be good leaders ourselves. So the question is, what does the Bible say about being a good leader? Now, interestingly enough, when we look at the Bible, we don't really see this plethora of good leaders. In fact, it's akin to what I described in the sermon from last week. It's a lot of unqualified men and women that God used to do great things. It's simple men and women that God used to do things beyond what their abilities were. And so can we, in fact, look to the Bible and conclude what a good leader is, knowing that when you look in the Bible, there just aren't that many great leaders? Well, yes, we can. Not only can we look in the Bible and see what a good leader is, but we should look in the Bible to find out what a good leader is. Now, this is important because all of us, in some sort of way, in some form or fashion, are called to lead something in our own lives. Now, you may be leading your own household. You may be leading somewhere on your job. You may just be leading yourself. But all of us have been called in some way to be leaders. Now, naturally, Christians follow Christ. But we have been called wherever we go to set the tone for the culture around us. And why that's important is because you don't have to be the CEO in order to do this. You don't have to be the manager. You don't even have to be the pastor of a church to lead. You just have to lead where God has placed you and planted you. That's it. So in that regard, every single one of us in this room who names the name of a Christian is a leader in some capacity. Now I want you to go with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 
And we're going to start at verse number 1. 1 Samuel 11, starting at verse 1. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabez-Gilead. And all the men of Jabez said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabez said to him, Give us seven days to spite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you, God, that everything that we need, we don't have to look to man, we don't have to look to any other external source. God, everything that we know and need is found in these 66 books, God. We pray that as we learn what a real leader looks like, God, that you will empower us to take that position in our lives, but also know that ultimately we can look to you as a true mark of what a leader is. We thank you for the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are introduced to 1 Samuel 11 featuring a man here named Nahash, and he is an Ammonite. Now he goes up against a, ter a territory within Israel known as Jabesh Gilead, 
And when this happened, they wanted to go ahead and just make a treaty with him because in the past they had dealt with a similar situation and they did not receive any help, nor did they receive any aid. And so because, considering that history, they think it was, you know what, Nahash, we will go ahead and make a treaty with you because the last time we dealt with any enemies, we did not get assistance from anybody. But this retreat, this treaty was rejected because the Ammonites didn't want to do it. Nahash wanted to lord over them. He wanted to capture them. And so he tells them, if you make a treaty with me, then I'm going to gouge out the right eyes of every single one of you. And that's going to bring a great disgrace on all Israel. Now, that's a weird thing for him to mention, but there's actually some context that he's referring to that it actually happened with Moses. But I want you to see some of the things that Saul actually does here in response to what he hears from the Israelites. And he's going to show us what a leader looks like. Now, remember, giving you the context, this is a leader who has just taken over Israel. He has just been anointed and appointed the leader over Israel. And so there are things happening immediately that he's going to have to address. And so there are some qualities I think we learn here from Saul that show us what a good leader is. What's the first quality that we see? The first point is that he is empathetic. He is empathetic. When brought the concern of the people, Saul wants to know why they're weeping. He is genuinely concerned with their emotional state. Now, if you know anything about leadership, if, you, if you've ever read any books about it, if you've ever done any studies on it, there are lots of philosophies on how in or out of touch a leader should be with his people. We all know the Machiavellian philosophy, which says that it is better that your people fear you than they love you. But there is actually no evidence that fear-mongering has long-term sustainability in any leadership role. Good leaders, in fact, are loved because they genuinely love the people that God has placed them over. I was having a conversation recently with someone about a specific pastor. I won't say who that pastor is. He may be in the room. He may be in the back. And I was telling this person as I had lunch with them, I said, you know, what really impresses me about this pastor as a leader is many people gain the respect of their membership of the people that they lead by causing them to feel distant from them, by causing them to feel like they're lording over them. But this person in particular has actually done the opposite. He has loved his people so much that they have loved him in return. See, we see some interesting terminology here with Saul again. And we saw it used before. It says, and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And then it says, as a result of that, Saul was angry. Now, I want you to see this process. As their recently appointed king, he is concerned with what concerns them. He emphasizes with them and empathizes with them, and he is angered in the face of injustice before his people. Listen, real leaders are not only in tune with the people but most importantly, real leaders are in tune with God. What does the Bible tell us about anger? How should we be angry? In what manner should we express our anger? Well, the Bible says that you should be angry, but when you're angry, you shouldn't sin. 
You should have the type of anger that is a righteous indignation. In other words, what angers God should anger you. What angers God should anger all of us. Now, what does he get angry after the spirit of God rushed upon him? Because this injustice also angered God. How does God think in terms of sin and injustice? What does he say about it in Scripture? Well, we learn in Proverbs 22 and 8. It says, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. God hates injustice. But let me be clear. What do I mean when I say injustice? What is injustice? I can tell you, all sin is injustice against God. And a good leader identifies the fact that any sin is not only an injustice against a person, but it is an injustice against God. And a real leader is angry at what angers God. A real leader is not a passive observer but they want to address the effects of the sins around them. Listen, nobody more than me wants to have good theology, but a real leader doesn't just have a good theology in their head. They have good theology in their heart and in their hands and in their feet that actually makes them want to do something about the effects of sin in the world. Good leaders are sensitive to the needs of their people, even if the needs of the people are not their own. Remember, Paul admonished Christians that even if you have the freedom to participate in certain activities, if you have the personal freedom to eat certain foods, that you are to be sensitive of your brother or your sister in Christ who does not have that same freedom. Now, one of the things that always bothers me, I can't stand it when there's something dramatic or traumatic that happens and somebody will say, you know, I can identify with that because I have a sister. Or I can identify that because I know somebody that's just like that. In other words, they're saying, I can empathize with that situation because I know somebody like that. But you want to know this? Good leaders don't need to have personal points of reference in order to feel empathy. If you're a Christian, you should just empathize with people. You should empathize with their suffering. They are able to identify with the heart and suffering of the people anyway, whether or not they have a personal connection to the person suffering. They are able, as the Bible says, to make themselves all things to all people. In other words, a real leader to the weak, they are weak. To the mourning, they mourn. You know, as Mike, again, you can identify with this. When you're in seminary, when you want to be a good pastor, you learn about good theology. They even teach you how to preach. You even learn how to read in different languages. But what you don't learn in seminary is how to counsel someone who just received a devastating diagnosis. You can go to school to be a teacher, but you don't learn how to be patient with a student who is 
delayed, even though they're trying. Now, how was Saul able to identify with the suffering of his people, though he had just become their king? Well, it's simple. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered him. Now, we need the Holy Spirit as well, which is why we have been called to be spirit-filled, to continue to be filling ourselves with the Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, meaning Saul is filled with the Spirit of God. So look at what he does. The second point, he united the people. The first one is that he was empathetic, but the second one is that he united the people. Again, there is some cultural context here. Now, we won't get into it, but the people knew exactly what it means when Saul cut the oxen into pieces and sent it to them. It wasn't just a warning by him, by the way. It was a call to action. There is something that is indelible about certain leaders who can just make people follow them. They know how to use the emotions of people to accomplish good. But we also have to understand that being able to unite people is not the only evidence that somebody is a good leader. There are many bad people who can unite people. There's probably no person in history who was better at galvanizing people for a purpose than Hitler. He was able to unite Nazis. But they were called, they were united over a cause that was evil. Good leaders know not only to defend the truth, but they know how to galvanize people with a common cause for the common good. In other words, real leaders are not cowards. When we look through the annals of time, the leaders who lorded over people, the leaders who abused people, they're the real cowards. We want to talk about leaders. Let's talk again about Hitler. What a powerful man who united people but was left to kill himself. Too afraid to be captured by American or Russian soldiers. What about Jim Jones who led thousands of people to their death just by drinking some Kool-Aid but was too afraid to do it himself and died by a gunshot wound like a coward. Yes, many of the people who lorded over folks usually end their reigns as cowards. Look at what it says here. It says, when he mustered them at Bezet, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. How can one man have gotten so many people to fight and defend one singular cause in such a dramatic way? Because Saul was not doing this on his own. God had anointed him to do this work and all that he does. And as great as it looks, it is not him doing this because of his own merit. It is only happening because God was giving him the measure of faith to do what he needed to do at that time. Every leader, whether they realize it or not, is an instrument of God. 
If you are a husband, if you are a wife, if you are an employee, if you are an employer, if you are a student, if you are a business owner, you are an instrument of God. And I can tell you this, the good leaders, they know that. And they submit themselves to the use of God. The good ones realize that they do not have within themselves the ability or the wherewithal to do anything great apart from God. But you see, the problem with bad leaders, the bad ones always ascribe the works of God to themselves. Bad leaders are never humble. They always want you to know what they did, who they did it for, and how hard they had to work in order to do it. I want you to go with me to Isaiah chapter 10. It's one of those texts I've referred to a lot, but I don't think we've ever actually gone there. I want to go there today in verse 12. I want you to see what an arrogant and prideful leader looks like. And I want you to see how this leader learns that they are just an instrument in the hand of God. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12. It says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. What does the king of Assyria say? For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasure. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Listen how God responds. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as a, when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that even a child can write them down. Listen to this. Just in case you don't know, God had used the king of Assyria and Assyria's people to judge all of Israel. And he used them to bring destruction so that that destruction and that judgment would lead to repentance. But as a response, the king of Assyria in his arrogance lauded himself, thinking that he was the responsible party. In his arrogance, he said, by my strength, I have done this, and by my wisdom. In other words, he failed to see that God was using him as his means to judge and correct. And so we see what God says to him. Shall the axe boast of itself over him who hews with it, or the, 
the salt magnifies itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. God says that I alone am God. I am not at your disposal, king of Assyria. You are at my disposal. I am not at your mercy. You are at my mercy. I was wielding you in my hand, but now judgment will come to you thinking that you did any of this on your own. Good leaders, not only can they unite people, but they also know how to humble themselves under the humbling hand of the Lord. If you don't know who John Wooden is, most of you should, but John Wooden was possibly the greatest coach in basketball history. He was certainly the best coach in college basketball history. But a lot of people had a difficult time pinpointing what exactly made him great at coaching. He just knew in some sort of way how to take five individuals and make them one. And he would always tell them, he gave a great TED talk on this once. He says, listen, I have a definition of success. And that is that you do as much with what God has given you as you can. He said, don't do any more, but don't do any less. God has endowed every single one of you with a certain amount of capacity for the gift that you have. And he says success was by giving all that you had back to God. And when you looked at him, he was the most humble and God-fearing man who never saw himself by his career success. Every single one of us in this room in some sort of way has been endowed with certain gifts. And God wants us to use those gifts for him. And they are to glorify him and to make his name great. And so our final point in the sermon today, we learned that he was empathetic. We knew that he knew how to unite people. But finally, we see that Saul is merciful. He is merciful. This is what it says. It says, bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Mercy. Mercy just might be the most underrated quality of a good leader. In fact, when most of us think of being in charge, we think about being able to tell people what to do. We think about firing people. But every good leader has to have a capacity to show mercy. A good leader realizes that some of us have started in a further position than other people. A good leader realizes that there are realities that shape a person. There are experiences that make a person who they are. And that it is easier to cut somebody's growth off at the knees than to be merciful with them. A good leader realizes that even one idle word can be enough to stifle somebody's growth. 
Look here. I want you to see what happens with Saul. They say, Saul, you're the king. Pastor Mike, you probably felt this way as a pastor before. And they want him, because he's the king, you should just kill these people. They sinned against you. They tried to rise up against Jabesh. You should just kill them. But he doesn't. Why? I mean, he had every reason to do it. They were going to kill him. They were going to kill their people. So why doesn't he just eye for an eye? Tooth for a tooth. Did they deserve death? Yeah. But you see, we have to understand that this is a hint for us with an eye towards Jesus. There is a place in the Gospels where the people were not responding to the preaching and the proclaiming of the gospel by Jesus. And his disciples says, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Jesus rebukes them. Christ on the cross was in the proper position to judge us. Jesus Christ on the cross was in a proper position to bring about death upon us, which we'd rightfully earn. Saul for us is foreshadowing that same grace and mercy that we have received from God. And I want you to see what his reasoning is for not killing them. He says, for today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. In other words, he is saying, I am not the reason for Israel's salvation. Therefore, I am not in the position to judge the worthiness to live. Because it was God who gives and sustains life for the people. But what does the Bible also tell us about mercy? Blessed are they who are merciful for they shall receive mercy. It's in reference to one of those scriptures that we quote out of context. The Bible talks about a capacity to forgive. It says, forgive and you will be forgiven. And you know what it says right after that? Give and it will be given to you. Press down, shaking together, running over. What does that mean? If you have a capacity for forgiveness and to give mercy, mercy will be given back to you. And that's what we really need. The leader who can show mercy can do so because they know that they are a product of God's grace and mercy, not just their effort. This is probably not seen any clearer for us than after the Civil War. When Abraham Lincoln had the opportunity to punish those harshly who had become political and military leaders in the Confederacy. And like they did with Saul, many of his contemporaries even wanted him to put them to either long-term sentences or just commit them to death. But he refused. In fact, many of these same men were pardoned. Now, why would he do that? Because in order for those men 
to have any chance to turn from what they had done and serve a now unified country, they had to respect the leader and the laws. And somehow Abraham Lincoln knew by giving them mercy, he was also giving them life. Y'all, we are leaders in our home. And we are leaders in our home where family will fail to meet our standards. We are leaders on our jobs where people will scoff at our Christ. But we must give mercy. Because in giving that mercy to the scoffer, giving that mercy to the opponent of the gospel, we may be giving them life. I'll close with this. This past week, I had a conversation with someone who was telling me about some talks they'd had at their job with their coworker who was a staunch opponent to Christianity. And somewhere while they were conversing with this girl who admitted that she practiced witchcraft, they told this person, you know, I like you. You're not like these other Christians that I've talked to. And she told me, she said, when I heard this, I actually got nervous because I thought maybe I had done something wrong. But I told her, I said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. I said, what she was telling you is that even though you were telling her the truth and were disagreeing with her position, you did it laced with love and mercy. Now, I will tell you that this person on their job is barely 17 years old, just about to go to college. She is not a leader on her job. She is not a manager. She is not a shift leader. She is not a leader by title, but she's a leader by calling. Every single one of us is a leader by calling. And I will tell you, none of us has a capacity to be all the things that it requires of us. But it gives us this hope that we can look to Christ and see mercy exacted perfectly. To be, see justice exacted perfectly. To see judgment exacted perfectly. All of the capacity of good leadership was demonstrated to us and found in Christ. And so, no, we don't have the capacity to be Christ, but it should be even more motivation to ensure that our lives and our behavior and our actions look less like ourselves and more like him. And for that, that can be every single one of us. And that is what a real leader looks like. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word today. God, we thank you that you have called us in various places and various ways to serve you. God, each one of us has been called to serve you, whether that is in our home, whether that is in our workplace, God, whether that is at a school. If we are naming the name of Christ, we have been called to bloom where we've been planted. God, we as Christians are not passive observers. We are not cowards. 
But we have been called to be the light in a dark world. And so God, we just ask that wherever you may have placed us, no matter how dark it may be, no matter how contrary to the truth it may be, that we will be the source of light and truth wherever we are. God, there may be even people in this room who are listening and think, I don't have that capacity. I don't want that capacity. And maybe that's because they don't know you. But God, my prayer is that today they would come into the knowledge of the truth. If there's anybody watching that, this would be the day they would come into the knowledge of the truth of who you are. That they will humble themselves to the humbling hand of God. They will see their deservingness for the first time of being on the cross. Their deservingness of death and knowing that you sent your son to absorb that penalty on our behalf. God, we don't have the capacity within ourselves to do anything great for you. We don't even have the capacity to save ourselves. So God, just help us remember that the only way that our lives will be found faithful to you wherever they may be, is that they are humbly submitted to you and your righteousness. God, pray for us. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I do pray that this word today has been a blessing.